good morning. There are some news stories that uh, happen to get our attention more than others. And the most recent news story that um, I just paid particular attention to was the story about that massive ship that blocked the Suez Canal. Now, I know this is kind of a strange story, but it fascinated me. Do you know that the Suez Canal, I did a little research, right, is about 101 miles long. And this massive ship called the Ever Given it was, is 200,000 pounds, right? 200,000 pounds. It's a massive ship. And one insurance company estimated that during the time for one week in which that ship blocked the canal, um, that blockage reduced global trade by as much as $10 billion a week. That's amazing. And because this ship blocked the canal, hundreds of other ships couldn't pass through. The Suez Canal is what allows ships to move more quickly, right, from Europe to Asia. I mean, if you've been wondering, hey, where is my package? Well, <laughs> the Ever Given blocked the canal and now boats have to go all the way around Africa. I mean, just think, one boat dramatically changed world trade. And it just made me stop and think, hey, Blake, what in your life is having such an impact on other people? For good, but primarily for bad. Like, what is, what is hindering you right now, keeping you, blocking, right, others from seeing the goodness of God? As I was thinking about this, I thought about what we're called to be. We're called to live as light, Matthew 5 tells us. We're called to live as ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. How we live impacts people's perception of God and the credibility of the gospel. We're called to be God's ambassadors, to represent a different value system, to represent our king, the one who loves us, who, who sent his son into the world to demonstrate his love for us, and he allows and uses us to represent him. We are to be able to say, as, as Paul said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. That's my prayer. Lord, may I live in such a way that I can say with integrity to my friends, to my neighbors, to my family, to my kids, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Not always perfect, obviously, but help me to set an example to not live in such a way that people look at me and they go, hey, you know what? What you do right there, the way you live, the way you speak, the way, what you exemplify, it, it causes me to stumble. I don't see the goodness of God flowing through your life, Blake. So I just spent time just thinking about, hey, what's keeping us, church, from being all that God would have us to be such that the blessings of God would flow freely through us and we could be the light that God calls us to be.
We're continuing our series on 2 Timothy, and um, this is the last of Paul's letters, and he's writing to his protege, Timothy, from a, from a prison cell. He's awaiting execution, and these are his last words to tell Timothy, hey, this is what it looks like to live as a godly leader, to live as a light, to live as an ambassador of Christ, to make a difference, to live such that the blessings of God would flow through you and impact a dark world that so desperately needs to know the love of Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked about how to flee youthful passions and that we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And today we're gonna talk about how to engage others in a very polarized and divisive culture. I think what is hindering, blocking us from being the effective witness that God calls us to be is a quarrelsome spirit, an argumentative spirit, an unkind, unloving, prideful, arrogant spirit. I was sitting here as rereading this passage over and over again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. I'm gonna read it to you. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn and, and mark this passage. I thought, well, Lord, maybe there's no more relevant passage in 2021 than this one. And it reads this way. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Let me say that again have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So based on this short little passage here today, we're gonna ask and answer three questions. And those questions are this. When should I argue? When should I argue? Secondly, how should I argue? And thirdly, why? Why? Now, when you hear argue, you, you may, that may uh, bring up a negative connotation to you. That's not what I mean. Arguing in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? Um, to reason with others, to plead with others, to present your case, to defend, right? Um, those aren't bad things. But there's definitely a time when we should speak. There's definitely a way in which how we should speak. And we most certainly should examine our motives for whenever we speak. So the three questions, when should I argue, how should I argue, and why should I argue? Let's, let's look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Paul warns us. He warns us against engaging in foolish and ignorant controversies. We're, ha- we're to have nothing to do with them. Your translation may say, refuse, avoid, reject them. That's the idea. Like at all costs, 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I, I, I thought about what are the things which I just reject out of hand that I want nothing to do with. Top of mind, sushi. <laughs> I do not like sushi. So it's like, hey, Blake, avoid ignorant, foolish controversies like you avoid sushi. Some of you, it's snakes, right? Just of, you, you just, you see a snake, it doesn't matter if it's red or black, yellow or whatever, friend of Jack, you're like, I want away from snakes. And I get it. And by the way, save your emails. I don't care what kind of sushi you like, where you go eat sushi. I, I mean, any of those things, all my friends have tried me. Oh, try this sushi, or you should go to this sushi place, or hey, I'm gonna surprise you. This one you're really gonna like. I don't like sushi. We live in Texas, okay? Let's go eat barbecue, let's go eat steaks, let's go eat hamburgers. Thank you. You can go eat sushi with your girlfriends. All right. Too far, too far. All right, all right, all right, focus. We are to avoid foolish and ignorant controversies. I love this. The Greek word for foolish, moros. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what word we get from that. Moronic. Do not get drawn off sides by moronic controversies. Ignorant or unlearned some translations say speculations, the idea of those arguments which have no basis in truth. We're to avoid them. We're to run from them. We're not to engage in them. But let me be really clear. Paul isn't saying we shouldn't engage people with the truth. Time and time again, I could read you many passages, but like Acts 17, verse 17, it says this. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews in the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Acts 18, four, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The, the idea again here is, is not that we shouldn't engage people with the truth, we absolutely should engage people with the truth. But there are just some things that are not worth fighting over. And that's what he's talking about here. Speculations, foolish, ignorant controversies. And the reason is, he's very clear, it's because they lead to unproductive quarrels. This idea was so important to Paul, he repeated it multiple times in his letters. First Timothy four, verse seven, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 17, which we studied recently, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Some conversations, is like, they're like poison. Titus 3.9, 
but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. And I can give you passage after passage of where Paul repeats this idea. Some things are not worth fighting over. So stop it. But far too many of us, we love to argue. And I include me in the us. We love to argue. Now I'm going to step on some toes here. Look no further than your social media feed. Look no further than social media. We love to argue. Before the pandemic, we argued over food, music, books, sports, politics, fashion, and everything in between. After the pandemic, whew, we argue everything from travel, when to travel, how to travel, if you should travel, vaccines, get the vaccine, don't get the vaccine, social gathering, should you gather, yes, you should gather, how big should you gather, statues, should schools reopen, how should they reopen, when should they reopen, going to church, singing in church, seating in church, masks in church, and I could go on and on. We love to argue. Quite frankly, What do you think this is? That's right. This, friends, is coming to represent so many things. It's not just a mask. I've read all the emails. I've received dozens of them. This has come to represent a political statement, a left-wing conspiracy, a test of one's Christian faithfulness, a way to stay healthy, a way to protect and serve other people and everything in between. I've been told that I don't believe in the sovereignty of God because I'll wear a mask. I've been told that I must not love people. I must not love them because I encourage others to gather responsibly and everything in between. And here's what's sad. Some of you I've never even met. But I know where you stand on a mask. I know where you stand on a mask. And here's my hunch. I imagine many of your neighbors know more about where you stand on a mask or where you stand politically than they ever, ever have heard a word from you about how to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I think that's true. Are your neighbors more convinced about what you believe politically than they've ever heard you speak of Jesus? Are they more drawn to Jesus because of your example over this past year or more confused and more polarized? Just stop and think about it. We argue over insignificant and significant topics with the same ferocity. And we need a guide. We need a way to, to prioritize, hey, when should I argue? And when should I walk away? 
And so I want to offer something to you. Three questions. The first is this, when must I speak? Secondly, when should I speak? And thirdly, when could I speak? You see, not everything should rise to the level of a 10. As if we walk around with a microphone, shouting as loud as we can on every subject of every belief that we have with no filter, and everything goes to a 10. You lose your voice and it confuses people. Think about when you must speak in the category of essentials. What are those things that have eternal impact. I mean, quite literally, eternal impact. I hope you are loud when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you are loud when it comes to the gospel, the deity of Christ, the word of God. Please be loud. But then there are things where you might hold convictions. And I would say, these aren't necessarily the essentials, but they are important. They guide your decisions, how you spend money, where you spend your time. I have friends who lead in certain ministries, and every time I'm with them, man, their conviction, their passion bleeds through. And I love it. Because God's got them on missions serving in certain ways, and you can tell in their conviction. I mean, they, they are passionate, but it's not an essential. And then there, then there are the things where you could speak of, but maybe, you know what? You don't always have to speak about it. I mean, it's kind of like Baylor winning the national championship in basketball, right? <laughs> I mean, I could talk about that. Or I could let it go because we have so many Longhorn and AM fans in here. And so maybe I'll leave that one out, right? <laughs> but honestly, we need a grid, we need a guide to where we recognize hey, like when it comes to the things that are essential, let me tell you what doesn't matter Baylor basketball. Okay? So there's, there's things in which we must speak. There's things in when we should speak. And there's things we could talk about. And not all of them are equal. We must discern when we should argue. Now, another way of saying this is major on the majors and minor on the minors. And just... While we're all friends here speaking transparently, let me tell you where I often blow it in my home. This. Let me tell you what drives me absolutely crazy. Observe. That drives me crazy. How many of you in your home have kids who will open up a water bottle, take one sip, put it down, and leave it there for like 48 hours? And then when you say, hey, whose water bottle is this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, guys, look, there are only six of us in this family. Somebody picked up this water bottle, right, and they put it down on the table, and then they walked away. 
Now, you would think in my home, this would be rise to the, to the category of essential, right? Because of the way it just drives me crazy. And when I respond as if that's an essential, it discourages my kids. And so when I see a water bottle, which someone has had one sip out of, I want to demand the $3 that it costs, right? <laughs> to buy the water bottle, I want to tell my kids, hey, we're just gonna take all this water and shake it up, right? We're gonna toss a coin since nobody's gonna admit to it and somebody's gonna drink all of it, right? I wanna do all those things. <laughs> but that's not gonna bless them. And I've blown it because I have not known when to argue. And it discourages them. It hinders my effectiveness in loving and leading my kids. So how should we argue? Well, verse 24 is so clear. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Paul warns us against a quarrelsome spirit, and instead he promotes kindness, clarity, patience, and gentleness. Notice he says, notice he says here, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. I stopped and I thought about that this week. It, he says, to everyone, not just to those who agree with you, look like you, vote like you, think like you, but kind to everyone, not just to those who agree with us. We are to be skillful in our teaching. This doesn't mean you have to have a master's in every subject, but what it does mean is that you're to speak with clarity when you do speak on different matters. We're to be patient when wrong. I love the New Living Translation. What they say in this text is, we are to be patient with difficult people. We all have a category for that, don't we? It's the person you work with, that when you see them, you're like, Whew. right? We're to be patient with difficult people. And we are to correct our opponents with gentleness. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. May it be good for us to put Ephesians 4.29 right over our phone. So every time we're tempted to get on social media and say anything. Go, hey, does that pass that test? Or Colossians 4, verses five and six. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How was your speech this week? Was it seasoned with salt? What you argue and how you argue are equally important. Let me say that again. What you argue and how you argue 
are equally important. But gang, we have lost the ability to respectfully engage with each other. And I see it time and time again. We, we commit the logical fallacies we learned about in high school, in speech class, right? We shout, we attack people's character, we mischaracterize their arguments, we lazily appeal to our favorite sources of authority, and none of those strengthen your argument. It's an ad hominem when you attack the person rather than engage with the idea. It's a straw man when you misrepresent what someone else believes or their argument and then you tear it down. And they never would have explained it that way. It's an appeal to authority. Just because your favorite politician believes something doesn't make the argument true. We've lost the ability to reason and engage with others. And what I want to suggest to you is you're never just responding to an argument, but to a person. Each time you're engaging with others, you're not just wrestling with ideas, you're speaking to a person. A person who has a story, a person who is loved by God and a person who represents an opportunity that the Lord has given to you to love them, to love them. Every argument, behind every argument is a person we have the opportunity to love. And what you say and how you say it are equally important. One person said this, when people on the streets are asked, what is a Christian? What do they stand for? On, on nearly every occasion, words came back such as anti-abortion, anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-welfare, anti-this, anti-that. And words like harsh, self-righteous, intolerant, or mean-spirited. Yet another poll of people asked what they think Jesus was like and almost universally returns with words like compassionate, nonviolent peacemaker, and reconciler. How do we explain the contradiction here, yes? Either the popular conception of Jesus is mistaken, or we in the church have been following the wrong agenda. How we say it and what we say are equally important. Wisdom offers us a better way in which we should reason and present our arguments and engage in a culture that's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Wisdom gives us a better way. I want to give you five Proverbs. I would encourage you to write these down and to think about what each of them teach us and how we should engage. The first is this. Seek first to understand and to empathize. Seek first to understand and to empathize. Proverbs 18.2 says this, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Do you hear that? It's a fool who doesn't try to understand the perspective of someone else. What do they do? They just talk, 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 and share their view. That's foolish. Seek first to understand. 
Second, check your emotions. Before you speak, check your emotions. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit or to his anger, but a wise man quickly holds it back. If your emotions are getting the best of you, it's just best to remain silent. Third, measure your words. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, or a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Fourth, this is what our moms taught us. Limit your words. Limit your words. Sometimes less is more. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And last, know when to shut up. Now, my mom's watching this online right now. And she will send me an email. Because she raised me better. Blake, don't say shut up. But mom, there's times when we need to know when to shut up. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Stop. Be quiet. Stop wrangling over words that leads to quarrels and division. The Barna Research Group, um, which is a, a polling group, if you will, that um, reported this recently. The number one quality, and I want you to think about, what do you think the number one quality non-Christians look for in a person with whom to talk about the faith? Now think about this. They, they interview hundreds of people. Hey, what's the number one quality you look for if you're gonna speak to someone about the Christian faith? The number one quality is this, someone who listens without judgment, 62%. Hey, I just want somebody who can listen to me without making me feel like I'm less than, that I'm being judged, that I've blown it. And here's another uh, fact that they put out, that only a minority, 34%, says the Christians they know personally possess this quality. I hate that. Man, I, I pray that Watermark is a place where our non-believing friends can come and ask their questions and know that we're gonna love them. We're gonna tell them the truth, but we're gonna love them. One of the, I, I recommend this. The, um, one of my favorite books I've read in the past few years is called Secret Thoughts from an Unlikely Convert. Secret Thoughts from an Unlikely Convert. It's written by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And I want to quote a little extensively from her book. She used to be the head of the English department at Syracuse University, militant les lesbian, if you will. 
very uh, strong progressive activist and political in her views. And she wrote an op-ed um, piece in the paper uh, crit uh, criticizing Promise Keepers, which is an evangelical uh, ministry. And I just want you to, to listen um, to her story. After I published in the local newspaper a critique of the Promise Keepers for their gender politics, I received a batch of mail, hate mail and fan mail. I received so many letters from this little editorial that I kept empty Xerox boxes on both sides of my desk, one for the hate mail and one for the fan mail. In this batch of mail, I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't really know how to respond to Ken's letter, but I found myself reading it and rereading it. I didn't know which box to file this letter in. And so it sat on my desk and it haunted me. By the way, I hate a messy desk one where papers litter the surface. And Pastor Ken's letter sat on my desk for a whole week. This is six days longer than I normally can stand. It really bothered me that I didn't know where to fit it, file it. I threw it away even a few times, but always found myself digging through the department's recycling bin to reclaim it at the end of the day. The letter invited me to call its author to discuss these ideas more fully. It was the kindest letter of opposition that I'd ever received. After a week, I called. The church. What would it look like if this week you and I responded like Pastor Kim and lovingly engaged those who disagree with us. If we were kind, clear, and patient. In such a way that it would cause our opponents, if you will, to sit there and go, man, I, I don't know how to respond to this. I don't know which, which box to file it in. There's something about the way you, though, speak to me because it was that letter that led to a conversation, that led to a dinner, that led to a friendship that radically changed her life. Radically changed her life. And she could not make sense of what she believed Christians st stood for and what they were like and the stereotypes she had in her mind. She couldn't figure out how to reconcile that with the love and witness of Pastor Ken, she ran into a real Christian who loved her, didn't compromise the truth, but recognized, hey, what I say and how I say it is really important. And there's some things over here, Rosaria, that aren't worth fighting for. I want you to understand the essentials. I want you to understand where life is found.
Everything else is second place. So when should we argue? How should we argue? And finally, why should I argue? Why should I argue? Well, Paul warns us against any motive other than a repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Look what he says. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The goal, friends, is not to win the argument. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to win your brother. That's the goal. You see, Satan is our true enemy. Satan, it's a Hebrew word, which means adversary. You have an adversary and so do I. And he is the true enemy. Jesus referred to him as the father of lies. John 8, 44. You are of the father, of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He is a, a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is very clear about his tactics. It is he who blinds the eyes of unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is our true enemy, not those with whom disagree with us. And we are to pray for God to lead our opponents, what? To repentance. That should be our prayer. That's what Paul says right here. God may perhaps grant them repentance. A complete, to repent means a complete changing of the mind. To a knowledge of the truth that they might understand the truth of the gospel, what we just celebrated, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When we engage those with whom we disagree, our motive is not to win. Our motive is not to belittle or impugn. Our motive is to win our brother's heart, that they might come to repentance in a knowledge of the truth, such that they may come to their senses, he says, and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice it is Satan who is the intoxicator and captivator. Come to their senses literally means so they would return to soberness. That false doctrine 
anything um, antithetical to the gospel is intoxicating. You don't think rightly. But we engage people with the truth of God's word so they would return to soberness. They would see clearly. They would repent and come to have a relationship with the one true God. I, as much as anyone, I love to argue. And I love to win. And I forget these truths. In my home growing up, we argued for sport. If you didn't interrupt, you must not have anything important to say. And if you didn't speak up, you must not really have believed it. And um, that has not always served me well. Two weeks ago, I went to dinner with my brothers and I failed in the very thing I'm talking about. I looked forward to that dinner. We don't get dinner as often as I want. It's just the three of us sitting down and I got drawn off sides, not by a water bottle, but by something that is about as insignificant as water bottles. And I left that dinner and I go, what a blown opportunity. Why? Because I didn't know when to argue, how to argue, and why I was arguing. I failed. And I walked away and I go, man, what a blown opportunity. I got drawn off sides. And so I asked the Lord constantly to help me remember three truths. Number one, the goal of our instruction is love. 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And when I speak to my non-believing neighbors and friends, I remind myself there, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. It wasn't I that figured this out, but God, it, notice it's God who leads to repentance. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And finally, Proverbs 18, 19, it is hard to win back those whom we offend. Man, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. We must, friends, we must learn when we should argue, how we should argue, and we've got to examine our motivations for why we are arguing. Paul says that we, we are to live as the aroma of Christ. That quite literally, when you walk in and out of your schools, your neighborhoods, your friends' homes, your workplace, there should be a distinct difference in the way you speak, engage, and love people. There is an aroma and not a stench. They may not be able to explain it, but they go, hey, there's something different about your letter. There's something that makes me wanna know the God you say you serve. I need to grow in this area. I think we all need to grow in this area. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, <clears throat> We come before you this morning grateful 
that it is you who has changed our hearts. And that, Father, we don't seek to earn your love, earn your grace, but we freely receive it. And so, Lord, would you remind us of the gospel that would inform our lips such that we would be an aroma of Christ, that we would know when to argue, how to argue, and why we are arguing. And our neighbors would not just know our political convictions or what sports teams we cheer for, but they would know what really matters to us. And I pray, Lord, the first thing that they would think of is our love for you and the way in which um, the gospel speaks through our lives. Father, thank you for your kindness and grace toward us, for changing our hearts and for giving us the opportunity, Lord, to be your salt and your light, ambassadors for you this week. In Christ's name.